My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website at hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. All right, well, we've made it, made it to the end, right? So we've been covering the five solas, if you've not been with us, or um, maybe if you've missed a couple weeks, we finally are at week five, the last sola. So let's just review really quick what that means. Um, If we could get up the first slide, which should be the five solas, maybe in just a moment. All right, the five solas, right? Um, So here they are, sola scriptura. We talked about that. Scripture alone is the basis, the authority by which we live. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus in Christ alone. And today, we finally got to soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. So just to review a little bit, right? these These are five sayings five principles, you might say, um, that make us Protestants, that make us who we are as the church, right? And so this is what we as Protestant Christians believe. It's how we're saved, according to Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all things for the glory of God alone. Now, I want to warn you, we're at Soli Deo Gloria, and you might be tempted to think, okay, this is going to be an easy one, right? Let's tie a nice little bow on the end, but that's not true, right? Things are going to get, I think, a little bit messy today. Um, We're going to hopefully see some things about who God is that maybe will surprise us a little bit. Um, Maybe it'll be a reminder, hopefully, to us of who God is in in all his glory, right? Psalm 29 sums that up perfectly. You get this picture of God, right, that his voice is so powerful, Right, that the, the woodlands are stripped bare when he speaks. And that all in his temple cry glory. Right, this, is a, this is a picture of God, a big God. And so hopefully that's what I want you to see today. That the God that we serve, the God that saved us, according to scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he is a big God. And he does everything for his own glory. If that bothers you, we'll, we'll talk about what that means today. And so many of you might assume in this room um, that you understand what we mean when we say glory to God alone. But um, I'm going to argue that this is probably the one. Glory to God alone is probably the one that we as convinced, converted Protestant Christians in America today, the one we're most likely to actually get wrong, to actually misunderstand. Not because, right, don't hear me wrong, not because we don't really believe that God should indeed receive all the glory. I think probably everyone in this room would agree to that statement. God, God should receive all the glory. But because we are constantly tempted to cultivate ways of thinking about who God is, who we are, the meaning of the events in our lives that subtly rob him of the glory that he is due. Guys, our culture is 
this does not make sense in our culture. Glory to God alone. We live in a culture that says, exalt yourself. Right? You are enough. You are the center of attention, right? Live your best life, right? Live to please yourself. That's, that's the message of our culture. And glory to God alone goes against everything that our culture teaches about who we are and how we're to live in the world. Glory to God alone. It's, it's the sum total of everything the Bible teaches. It's the grand goal for which all things exist. It's the glue which holds all the other four solas together. And in so doing, it holds all our theology together. Right? If we could sum up what does the Bible teach in one phrase, it's all glory to God alone. It's the rationale which explains why our salvation must be according to scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why does that make sense? Because all things exist for the glory of God alone. Without the glory to God alone as both our starting spot and the finish line in thinking about who we are and how we're saved, the entire basis of our faith crumbles into the same self-exalting way of thinking about life that our world promotes. Right? This has to be the beginning, the ending of everything we think about who God is and what he's done in bringing us to himself through the cross. And this way of thinking, it, it's pretty prevalent in our day. Right? You don't have to look far to see that many, even Christians, have gotten this wrong or become off track in this way of thinking. When we get glory to God alone wrong, here's what happens, guys. This is why this is so important. When we get glory to God alone wrong, our theology turns into a study of psychology and sociology. It becomes more about people than it is about God. Our practice turns more into charity devoid of the mission. It becomes more about solving social issues than it is about seeing the gospel go forth to the nations. When we get glory to God alone wrong, our worship turns inward. It becomes more about self-reflection than it is about God-exaltation. And when we get glory to God alone wrong, our lives turn astray. It becomes more about doing whatever I want and then tacking God's glory onto the end than making every decision with the glory of God as my main objective. Do you see how this, how this changes everything? How... If we get glory to God alone wrong, we will get everything else wrong as well. So, this, this very principle, right? I mean, some people would ask, like, was the church in Luther's day during the Reformation, right, when all this was happening, did it really disagree with this phrase? No, I don't think that it disagreed with the phrase, glory to God alone wrong. But by getting all of these other things wrong, the, the authority of scripture and grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone as the only way that we can be saved apart from works of the law. By getting all of that wrong, it actually took the glory of God and made it our own. When all the Bible and all salvation and all of history is built and designed by God to bring glory to his own name, to exalt him as the one who is above every other name. We sang that, right? To exalt him as the one who is not like us, whose ways are not our ways and thoughts are not our thoughts, who does not operate the way that we operate because he is God and we are not. 
So here's what I want to do today. I want us to ask three questions that are going to help us make sense of what glory to God alone means. And in so doing, right, I, I'm not ambitious. I just want to cover the entire Bible today, okay, in the sermon, all right? So if you'll notice, like, I've got bookmarks of everywhere we're going to go, beginning to end, okay? We'll see, how, we'll see what we can do. But hopefully, by the end of this, I want you to see, not just one passage teaches this, but actually the very fabric of the entire Bible is woven together around this principle, all glory to God alone for all eternity. That this is the whole point of all of this, that God would receive the glory he is due as God. So, okay, so first question, right? What is God's glory? Now, I'm aware that when we say the glory of God, God's glory, that phrase, yeah, we, we say that a lot, I think. In church, you, you'll hear that. If you've been around church at all, you've heard the glory of God. But I don't know if we ever actually define what that means. What is God's glory? Like, what are we talking about? How is God glorified? What does that even mean? And so, God's glory can, can sometimes be this kind of vague concept that we preachers, teachers, right? We, we'll throw it out there, all glory to God, and we'll never actually clearly define what we mean when we talk about God's glory. So the first thing I want you to see is that God's glory and his holiness are often connected. They're connected together. And this is, I think, intentional. If, you, if you'll pull up Isaiah 6, 3. Okay, Isaiah 6, 2 and 3, actually. This is, so we've been studying, or we did study Isaiah on Wednesday night. You might remember this if you were there. But basically, Isaiah is having a vision of what heaven is like. And he's seeing the glory of God with his own eyes. And this is how it is described. He says, above him stood the seraphim, kind of angelic being. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, notice this. What do they say? These are the creatures in heaven worshiping God for all eternity. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy. If it's repeated three times, that means it's perfect. God is perfect in holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his holiness. No, his glory. So you see the connection there. There's a connection between the holiness of God and the glory of God. Okay, so let's start with holiness then. Holy is just a word which means set apart. The holiness of God then refers to his quality of being in a separate and superior class than any other being in existence. God is separate from distinct from anything else that exists in the world. In his otherness, he is morally pure, right? So this refers to his holiness is a moral category, right? He doesn't sin. He does no wrong. He is perfect in every way. He's morally pure. He's supernaturally powerful, right? We are not powerful. God is powerful. He can do whatever he wishes. He's super personal. He's three persons, in one being. He's infinite. There is no end to him. And he's all wise. We could probably add other things, but it at least means that. He's not like us. 
He's more powerful than us. He's more pure than us. He's more personal than us. He's infinite. He's all-knowing. He can do as he wishes. He is holy. He's set apart. So then, if that's what God's holiness means, then I want you to see this. This is how I would define God's glory. God's glory refers to the public display and or recognition of his holiness. So God is glorious where his otherness, his holiness, his, his quality of being set apart, his quality of being God and not something created is seen and or magnified, made much of. Okay, so then for us to glorify God, I think this is on the next slide, to glorify God is to acknowledge, to bow submissively before, to live in conformity to, and to take delight in the reality that God exists in a class of his own as creator, sustainer, and sovereign ruler over all things. What does this mean? It means to treat God like he's actually God. You sum it up in a phrase. So God's glory is the public display and or recognition of his holiness. And we glorify God where we recognize that. We order our lives according to it. We make much of it. We speak it out and say that it's true. Why is it so important when we sing songs to say over and over again, your, your name is above every name. You are glorious, right? You, all those lines are repeated in worship songs. Why? Because by saying it, we're acknowledging that it's true and we're confessing that it's true. God, you are God. I'm not God. You're God. And God is glorified where we recognize that reality. So glory to God alone means that God as creator, sustainer, sovereign ruler over all things, he arranges all history toward the purpose of glorifying himself, that we ought to live in response to that truth as his created and redeemed creatures. Right? And so you might say to yourself, hold on a second. Right? I can hear the objection now. Maybe you feel it inside of you. Wait, you're saying God does everything to glorify himself. Hold on. Does that mean that God is some kind of egomaniac who literally makes everything about himself? Right? Maybe that's the objection that you're thinking in your mind. And to that, I would say two things in response to that. First of all, it's only wrong of God to seek recognition that he's not worthy of. Right? So we get mad at people, rightly so, whenever they glorify themselves and they seek a glory they're not actually worthy of receiving. Where they seek recognition they're not actually worthy of, of having for themselves. Right? That person that you work with who is always trying to like be the best and receive all this praise and they act like they're the best and all of these things, you get mad at them because why? You're not that special, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's why you get angry with that, rightfully so. They seek to be glorified in a way that no person should be glorified. But God is not wrong to seek that glory if he's actually worthy of it. He's not wrong to seek recognition if he's actually earned that recognition that he asks for. So God made us to glorify him. And therefore, he has every single right as God to demand that we do it. 
to seek it, to ask for it, to command it. And then secondly, so that's the first thing I would say. Secondly, I would ask this question. Somebody has to be at the top of the pyramid. Somebody has to be the most exalted being in existence. Somebody has to be the most praiseworthy thing that exists in the world. So who would you have be worshiped and revered above all others? Right? If you're raising that objection in your mind and you're thinking, is God selfish? Well, somebody has to be at the top. And who's it going to be? Surely it's not yourself, right? Surely it's not me or any other created being. Who else is left? It has to be him. Ultimately, God's glorifying himself is for our good. We're going to see this because he's built us to do this. You were designed by God to give him glory. Everything was designed by God to give him glory. And we can only find ultimate joy and satisfaction in doing exactly what we were made to do. I love the Westminster Catechism. And the first question, I think, gets to the very heart of this. Right? The first question is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's what we were made to do. Right? That gets at the very heart of why we exist. And so maybe, maybe, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, I'm open to consider it. But this kind of maybe paints a picture of God that you've not seen before. Maybe one that you're uncomfortable with. So what I want to do now is I want us to, to look at the Bible. What does God say? Is this, is this actually true? Is what I'm saying true, that God does everything to glorify himself? And hopefully we'll cover, not every verse, not every chapter, but hopefully we'll cover from cover to cover, and you'll see that God makes this pretty clear in the Bible, that this is his design to glorify himself. So the question then is the second question. How does God glorify himself? How does he do it? There are probably infinite ways that God does it. And I want us to see four that I think are especially important for us as we consider this. All glory to God alone. And I want you to notice, we're not starting with, how do I glorify God? That's one way we can actually get off track. If that's the first question we ask, how do I glorify God? Then we're tempted to actually make it more about us than it is about him. So the first question we want to ask is, how does God glorify himself? And then at the end, we'll ask, how do we live in response to that reality? Four ways that he does this. First, turn with me to Genesis 1, the very beginning. Genesis 1, 26. God glorifies himself in creating. In creating. Specifically in creating us. Okay, if, you, if you're not there, you'll, you'll see it on the screen. This is what it says. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Okay, where's God's glory in this passage? Well, notice the big thing. Repeated, I think three times, if I counted right. Let us make man in our own image. God created man in his own image. In his own image, he created him in the image of God. Right? Okay. It's really trying to make a point here. God created humanity after his own image. In other words, what does that mean? We were created to reflect God. Right? Think about that. If God made us in his image, then we are a reflection of him. Like, that's the reverse of it. We're a reflection of God. A reflection of his glory, a reflection of who he is. Right? So insofar as we mirror God in certain character traits, not in every way. We can't be all-powerful. By definition, we're created. But we do reflect God in certain ways. And so that reflection of God is his glory. He gives humanity authority over his creation, also part of that image bearing. That we have authority over creation, not the same authority that God has as creator, but as a ruler under his authority, we're his stewards, reflecting his glory in our care for and use of his creation. God commands, this is the big one I want you to see, God commands humanity to multiply and fill the earth. For what purpose? If humans are the image of God, and are therefore a reflection of his glory. What is God after in saying multiply, fill the earth, subdue it? He's after his glory. Because the command to fill the earth means that as humanity expands across creation, the whole earth is filled with his glorious image in us. Isn't that not mind-blowing? God created us to fill the earth with the reflection of his image, which is his glory. However, we know that when Adam sinned, God's image in us was marred. His glorious reflection through us diminished. And so, biblical history moves forward from this point. And I'm going to summarize about a thousand years worth of history here in just a few minutes, right? In Genesis 15, I'm sorry, in Genesis 3:15, actually, God promises to send one who will destroy Satan and restore his image in humanity by crushing out sin. He makes a covenant with Abraham later in Genesis 15, vowing to make him a great nation that will enjoy special blessing by his hand. In Exodus, God leads his people out of Egypt toward the promised land. He receives glory by utterly destroying the army of Pharaoh, who so arrogantly defied his sovereign rule. Right? It, that passage in Exodus, which is a really hard one to read because of the reality of God's destruction of those people. But he says, what does he say? It says that he received glory from it because of their rebellion. And as the people travel through the wilderness out of Egypt, he's represented there by a pillar of smoke and fire. 
This is his glory among the people, the manifestation of his holy nature. They can't come near it because it's holy and therefore glorious. Yet because of their sin and failure to uphold the law that he gave, God's glorious presence among them brings as much judgment as it does peace because they can't stand before him. Right? A holy God can't endure the sight of sinful people like us. So actually created a problem for the Israelites. And at the tabernacle, God's glory is manifested by the presence of the cloud, which rests on the most holy place. And who could go there? Only the high priest could enter the presence of God's glory, and only once a year. Right? So we who were made to be a reflection of God's glory in the world, now can't even endure his presence because we're sinful and our sin can't be in the presence of a glorious God like that. So you see the problem. Because of sin, God's glory, though a wonderful gift, brings terror and judgment upon the people because of their sin, because their sin mars his image within them. They were made to live at peace with God, but instead they live at hostility with him. And since they do not properly reflect his glory, they cannot properly enjoy his glory among them. Right? But the story doesn't end there. Right? Because God created for his glory. Sin marred that creation, but that didn't hinder God. Right? God, God knew what he was doing. And so that leads us to the second point, which is that God glorifies himself in covenanting. God glorifies himself in making covenant with his people. Turn to Ezekiel 36. Man, this is a great chapter of the Bible. Where again, we see this problem, right? Israel has sinned. His people have sinned. They can't be in his presence. It creates a, a tension, a conflict, which is that God's people are intended to be in his presence, are intended to enjoy his favor, but their sin is separating them. Isaiah told us that, that, his, that their sin was separating them from God. And so this is what the Lord says through Ezekiel. Verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. Hear this line. This is the key line right here. It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for what? For my holy name. His holy name is his character. It's who he is. It's his holiness and therefore his glory. Not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I, de when I what is he going to do? Demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. What is God after? He's after his glory. Why did he make the covenant with the people? For his own glory. Don't you see it? And this is what he says he's going to do. For I will 
take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful. I will not bring famine on you. I will also make the fruit of the trees and the produce of the field plentiful so that you will no longer experience reproach among the nations on account of famine. You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and detestable practices. Why? Why am I going to do this? It's not for your sake that I will act. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Let this be known to you. Be ashamed and humiliated because of your ways, house of Israel. In other words, repent of your sins. Notice what the Lord promises to do. Among other things, he promises to give them a new heart and a new spirit. He promises to put his spirit within them so that they keep his commands. He promises to redeem them from their sins, clean them from their iniquities, wash them from their uncleanness. What is this? This is nothing less than the salvation that we enjoy in the new covenant. And why does he say he's going to do it? For his own name. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's for our good, but ultimately it's for his glory to bring glory to himself so that he will be seen and known as a God who redeems and saves, as a God who is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Man, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm sure glad that God acts for his own glory. I am glad that he does it for his own glory because it means our salvation. The glory of God is the only hope of salvation we have. What other reason would God have to redeem broken, lost sinners who are his enemies than for his own glory? Okay, so then things move forward. How is God going to bring this about? God glorifies himself in redeeming. And I want to take us to two passages here because someone important comes on the scene. In John 1, you might have heard of him before. In John 1, verse 14, it says, The Word, that's a code name for Jesus, okay? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his what? We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only Son of from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then if you jump down to verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. What did the law bring? The law brought condemnation. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is, is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has redeemed him. And so in the New Testament, the glory of God, the presence of the glory of God becomes concentrated not in a pillar of fire, which brings judgment and wrath, not in the glory cloud, which rests in the Holy of Holies, but only one person can enter one time a year. 
but in the person of Jesus Christ, who is himself God. And you know what's so cool about this passage is the word that John uses when he says, he became flesh and dwelt among us. That word literally means he tabernacled. He is the presence of the glory of God among us in human form. Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory among humanity. With Christ, the glory of God was robed in human flesh. And the glory of God takes an unexpected turn. God says, I'm going to exalt my name. I'm going to make much of my name. I'm going to receive glory when I save you. And he does exactly the opposite of what we'd expect him to do. Instead of some mighty act, speaking a word, right? And riding in on a horse and all of this big theatrics that we would expect to see from the glory of God. He robes himself in human flesh and comes as the son of a carpenter. It's a weird and unexpected reversal. The glory of God became most exalted. It was most exalted through Christ's humiliation. Christ, God himself, took on the form of a mere creation. He came as a carpenter's son. God himself endured rejection and false accusation. Even as Christ manifested God's glory through mighty signs and wonders, he was turned aside by those who should have been most ready to recognize and receive him. He underwent a sinner's trial and a criminal's cross. And at that cross, God's glory was most magnified because it was only in the peculiar humiliation of the crucifixion that God's wrath and his grace could meet. Only at the cross can God both be just and the justifier of one who has faith. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. Man. And why did he do all this? Right? Jesus himself said, I didn't come to do my father's will. I mean, I didn't come to do my own will, but I came to do the will of my father who sent me. And Hebrews tells us that for the joy that lay before him, he, being Jesus, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has been what? Glorified, because he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross was the pathway to God's ultimate glorification, that he might be recognized as both perfectly just and infinitely merciful. And Jesus raised from the dead as a vindication of God's name. Then we turn to Ephesians 1, which I forgot to mark in my Bible. Tragically. And I just want to read a portion of this. I wanted to read more. But this is what Paul says. He's reflecting on salvation and on what Christ has done, what, what the Father has designed. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. He goes on, we've received redemption. We've been made right, forgiveness, all of these things. We've received an inheritance and all of this. Why? To the praise of his glory. 
Why did Christ save us? Why did God design it this way? That he might be glorified. We've been chosen, called, justified, forgiven, endowed with the Holy Spirit, and bestowed with eternal blessing and honor by God for the ultimate purpose that he might be glorified in his grace toward us. God has done this, that we might sing and shout the praise of his glorious name. And if you look, this is all over the New Testament. Romans 8, it's the same message, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Man, God has designed our salvation in this way for this reason, that he might be glorified, that he might be exalted as the only God, that he might be seen as the only one who could solve the problem of our sin. No one else. And then we get to the end. If you turn to Revelation 5, John is looking into heaven. The end is near, and, but there's a problem. Because for the end to come, there has to be one who is worthy to bring it about. That's the problem. And so he's weeping, he's crying, because there's no one worthy to bring the end of all things. And with the all, end of all things comes restoration and redemption Right? And so God glorifies himself in restoring. That he's going to make all things right in the end. He's going to restore his image in us so that we are properly glorifying him as we ought to. And he's going to restore his glory in all creation for all eternity. But who can do that? Well, I want to jump to verse 6 of Revelation 5. Because John is weeping. Nobody's found worthy. Who's going to come and take the scroll? Who's going to come and bring all things to their consummation? Who's going to come and make all things right again? Then I saw one, like a slaughtered lamb, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. This is in heaven. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And, as, and they sang a new song. And I want you to hear what they're singing. What is the praise to God's glory that will be sung throughout all eternity? This is what they're going to sing. What we're going to sing when we stand around the throne and we see Christ glorified. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. You're God. You're worthy because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. And then if you jump down to verse 12, no, I'm making Greg do a lot of work back there. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. And all creation sings his praises. The story of history ends with the redeemed people from every tribe and language, every people and nation gathered around the throne, acknowledging the glory of God as revealed in Christ 
for all eternity. This is the whole end game. This is the great aim for which the world was created and the great goal toward which God orchestrates all of history. God is bringing this about. And God does everything he does. He orchestrates all of history, even the things that we can't make sense of, how they fit into that story, all of it. He's working all of it together toward this goal, that Christ would be glorified as God, the one who redeemed a people for himself by becoming a human, humiliating himself, that he might be magnified above all other names for all eternity by all peoples everywhere. Man, isn't that a beautiful picture? It's why we exist as a, as a church. It's why you exist as a human being to bring glory to God in this way. And I want everyone to be there when this happens. And the only way we will be there when this happens is according to Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in this Christ alone. This is why we exist. This is why all things exist. Do you see the picture? We did it from beginning to end. We covered it. Genesis 1 to Revelation 5. God orchestrates all things for his glory. So then we ask the third question as we close. How do we live for God's glory alone? How do we live for God's glory alone? Well, this means a lot of things, doesn't it? I mean, if we, if we really embrace this and believe it, if we really come to understand the gravity of what we're talking about when we say the glory to God alone, it's going to change our whole lives. But I want to ask three questions, and then I'll be done. First of all, as, you, as you're just reflecting, okay, as you're reflecting on, is my life oriented in this way? The first question I would ask is, who gets the credit for your salvation? Is it more about something you did or is it more about something he did? I think that, that, that will help us get to the heart of whether or not we understand fully what God has done in saving us. Who gets the credit? Secondly, how, how do you make decisions about your work, your ambitions, your future in the world? And I'd love to tease out what that means, but this will change the way you think about decisions. Sometimes God is most glorified when we do things the way that the world says we shouldn't do things. Right? For example, what if, what if you're offered a promotion at work? Right? The world says, take it. More money, more power. But what if the glory of God says, maybe I should stay where I'm at? Because if I take this job, I won't have the same influence on my coworkers that I have now. Maybe if I take this job, I'm going to have more responsibilities. It's going to take time away from my family or other responsibilities I have in life. Right? These are all kinds of things that, man, it, it rocks my world. Because it's so easy to fall into that, that, that worldly ambition to do more, make more, be more powerful, have a better title, a better job, a bigger office, nicer car. But sometimes the glory of God compels us the opposite. And then thirdly, how do you approach worship in the church? What's the objective when we come here every week? And how should we think about what we want the future of our church to look like? 
as we're planning and working, what, what's our aim? What's our ambition? Is it to make much of ourselves or is it to make much of, of God's glory? Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.